We're continuing our reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality, here on Akadashi. And we're picking up where we left off. Chapter number 69. And this is entitled, The Great Sage Narada Visits the Different Homes of Lord Krishna. When the great sage Narada heard that Lord Krishna had married 16,000 wives after he had killed the demon Narakasura, sometimes called Bomasura, he was astonished that Lord Krishna had expanded himself into 16,000 forms and married these wives simultaneously in different palaces. Being inquisitive as to how Krishna was managing his household affairs with so many wives, Narada, desiring to see these pastimes, set out to visit Krishna's different homes. When Narada arrived at Dwarka, he saw gardens and parks full of various flowers of different colors, and also orchards overloaded with a variety of fruits. Beautiful birds were chirping, and peacocks crowed delightfully. There were ponds full of blue and red lotus flowers, and some of these ponds were filled with varieties of lilies. The lakes were full of nice swans and cranes, and the voices of these birds resounded everywhere. In the city there were as many as 900,000 great palaces built of first-class marble <clears throat> with gates and doors made of silver. The pillars of the houses and palaces were bedecked with jewels such as touchstone, sapphire, and emerald, and the floors gave off a beautiful luster. The highways, lanes, streets, crossing and marked places were all beautifully decorated. The whole city was full of residential homes, assembly houses, and temples, all of different architectural beauty. All of this made Dwarka a glowing city. The big avenues, crossings, lanes, and streets, and also the thresholds of every residential house were very clean. On both sides of every path, there were bushes, and at regular intervals there were large trees that shaded the avenues so that the sunshine would not bother the passers-by. <clears throat> In this greatly beautiful city of Dwarka, <clears throat> Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, had many residential quarters. The great kings and princes of the world used to visit these palaces just to worship him. The architectural plans were made personally by Vishwakarma, <clears throat> the engineer of the demigods, and in the construction of the palaces, he exhibited all of his talents and ingenuity. These residential quarters numbered more than 16,000, and a different queen of Lord Krishna's resided in each of them. The great sage Narada entered one of these houses, and saw that the pillars were made of coral and the ceilings were bedecked the ceilings were bedecked with jewels. The walls as well as the arches between the pillars 
glowed from the decorations of different kinds of sapphires. Throughout the palace were many canopies made by Vishwakarma that were decorated with strings of pearls. The chairs and other furniture were made of ivory and bedecked with gold and diamonds, and jeweled lamps dissipated the darkness within the palace. There was so much incense and fragrant gum burning that the scented fumes were coming out of the windows. The peacocks sitting on the steps became illusioned by the fumes, mistaking them for clouds and began dancing jubilantly. There were many maidservants, all of whom were decorated with gold necklaces, bangles, and beautiful saris. There were also many men-servants, nicely dressed in cloaks and turbans and jeweled earrings. Beautiful as they were, the servants were all engaged in different household duties. Narada saw that Lord Krishna was sitting with Rukmini Devi at that particular palace, <clears throat> who was holding the handle of a chamara whisk. Even though there were many thousands of maidservants equally beautiful and qualified and of the same age, Rukmini Devi personally was engaged in fanning Lord Krishna. <clears throat> Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead, worshipped even by Narada. Yet as soon as Krishna saw Narada enter the palace, he got down immediately from Rukmini's bedstead and stood up to honor him. Lord Krishna is the teacher of the whole world, and in order to instruct everyone how to respect a saintly person like Narada Muni, he bowed down, touching his helmet to the ground. <clears throat> Not only did Krishna bow down, but he also touched the feet of Narada and with folded hands requested him to sit on his chair. Sit on his chair, capital H, that means Krishna's chair. Lord Krishna is the Supreme Personality, worshipped by all devotees. He is the most worshipable spiritual master of everyone. <clears throat> the Ganges water, which emanates from his feet, sanctifies the three worlds. All qualified brahmanas worship him, and therefore he is called Brahmanya Deva. Brahmanya means one who fully possesses the Brahminical qualifications, which are said to be as follows. Truthfulness, self-control, purity, mastery of the senses, simplicity, full knowledge by practical application, and engagement in devotional service. Lord Krishna possesses all these qualities, and he is worshipped by persons who themselves possess such qualities. There are thousands and millions of names of Lord Krishna, Vishnu, Sahasranam, and all of them are given to him because of his transcendental qualities. Lord Krishna in Dwarka enjoyed the pastimes of a perfect human being. Therefore, when he washed the feet of the sage Narda and took the water on his head, <clears throat> Narda did not object, knowing well that the Lord did so to teach everyone how to respect saintly persons. The Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna, who is the original Narayana, an eternal friend of all living entities, thus worshipped the sage Narada according to the Vedic regulative principles. Welcoming him, welcoming him with sweet nectarian words, he addressed Narada as Bhagavan, or one who was self-sufficient, possessing all knowledge, renunciation, strength, fame, beauty, 
and other similar opulences, he particularly asked Narda, what can I do in your service? Narda replied, my dear Lord, this kind of behavior by your Lordship is not at all astonishing, for you are the supreme and master of all species of living entities. You are the supreme friend of, of all living entities, but at the same time, you are the supreme chastiser of the miscreants and the envious. I know that your Lordship has descended to this earth for the proper maintenance of the whole universe. Your appearance, therefore, is not forced by any other agency. By your sweet will only, you agree to appear and disappear. It is my great fortune that I have been able to see your lotus feet today. Anyone who becomes attached to your lotus feet is elevated to the supreme position of neutrality. Can I repeat that? It's okay. Anyone who becomes attached to your lotus feet is elevated to the supreme position of neutrality and is uncontaminated by the material modes of nature. My Lord, you are unlimited. There is no limit to your opulences. Great demigods like Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are always busy placing you within their hearts and meditating upon you. The conditioned souls who have now been put into the blind well of material existence can get out of this eternal captivity only by accepting your lotus feet. Thus, you are the only shelter of all conditioned souls. My dear Lord, you have very kindly asked what you can do for me. In answer to this, I simply request that I may not forget your lotus feet at any time. I do not care where I may be, but I pray that I constantly be allowed to remember your lotus feet. By asking this benediction from the Lord, the sage Narada showed the ideal prayer of all pure devotees. A pure devotee never asks for any kind of material or spiritual benediction from the Lord. His only prayer is that he may not forget the lotus feet of the Lord in any condition of life. A pure devotee does not care whether he is put into heaven or hell. He is satisfied anywhere, provided he can constantly remember the lotus feet of the Lord. Lord Chaitanya taught this same process of prayer in his Shikshashtaka, in which he clearly stated that all he wanted was devotional service, birth after birth. A pure devotee does not even want to stop the repetition of birth and death. To a pure devotee, it does not matter whether he has to take birth again in the various species of life. His only ambition is that he not forget the lotus feet of the Lord in any condition of life. After departing from the palace of Rukmini, Narada wanted to see further activities of Lord Krishna's internal potency, Yogamaya. Thus he entered the palace of another queen. There he saw Lord Krishna engaged in playing chess with his dear wife and Uddhava. The Lord immediately got up from his personal seat and invited Narada Muni to sit there. The Lord again worshipped him with as much paraphernalia for reception as he had used in the palace of Rukmini. 
After worshiping him properly, Lord Krishna acted as if he did not know what had happened in the palace of Rukmini. He therefore told Narada, My dear sage, when your holiness comes here, you are full in yourself. Although we are householders and are always in need, you don't require anyone's help, for you are self-satisfied. Under the circumstances, what reception can we offer you, and what can we possibly give you? Yet since your holiness is a brahmana, it is our duty to offer you something as far as possible. Therefore, I beg you to please order me. What can I do for you? Naraji knew everything about the pastimes of the Lord, so without further discussion, he simply left the palace silently in great astonishment over the Lord's activities. He then entered another palace. This time Naraji saw that Lord Krishna was engaged as an affectionate father petting his small children. From there he entered another palace and saw Lord Krishna preparing to take his bath. In this way, St. Narada entered each and every one of the 16,000 residential palaces of the queens of Lord Krishna, and in each of them he found Krishna engaged in different ways. In one palace he found Krishna offering oblations to the sacrificial fire and performing the ritualistic ceremonies of the Vedas as enjoined for householders. In another palace he found Krishna performing the pancha yagya sacrifice, which is compulsory for a householder. This yagya is also known as panchasuna. Knowingly or unknowingly, everyone, especially the householder, commits five kinds of sinful activities. When we receive water from a water pitcher, we kill many germs that are in it. Similarly, when we use a grinding machine or eat food, we kill many germs. When sweeping a floor or igniting a fire, we kill many germs, and when we walk on the street, we kill many ants and other insects. Consciously or unconsciously, in all our different activities, we are killing. Therefore, it is incumbent upon every householder to perform the pancha suna sacrifice to rid himself of the reactions to such sinful activities. In one palace, Narada found Lord Krishna feeding pramanas after performing ritualistic yagyas. In another palace, Narada found Krishna silently chanting the Gayatri Mantra. And in a third, he found him practicing fighting with a sword and shield. In palaces, Lord Krishna was found riding on horses, elephants, or chariots, and wandering hither and thither. Elsewhere, he was found lying down on his bedstead, taking rest, and somewhere else he was found sitting in his chair, being praised by the prayers of his different devotees. In some of the palaces he was found consulting with ministers like Uddhava on important matters of business. In one palace he was found surrounded by many young society girls enjoying in a swimming pool. In another palace he was found giving well-decorated cows in charity to the brahmanas. And in another palace he was found hearing the narrations of the Puranas and of histories such as the Mahabharata, which are supplementary scriptures for disseminating Vedic knowledge to common people by narrating important instances in the history of the universe. Somewhere, Lord Krishna was found enjoying in the company of a particular wife by exchanging joking words with her. Somewhere else, he was found engaged with his wife in religious ritualistic functions. Since it is necessary for householders to increase their financial assets 
for various expenditures, Krishna was found somewhere engaged in matters of economic development. He was found enjoying family life according to the regulative principles of the Shastras. In one place, he was found sitting in meditation. In one palace, he was found sitting in meditation as if concentrating his mind on the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is beyond these material universes. Meditation, as recommended in authorized scripture, is meant for concentrating one's mind on the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Vishnu. Lord Krishna is himself the original Vishnu, but because he played the part of a human being, he taught us definitely by his personal behavior what is meant by meditation. Somewhere Lord Krishna was found satisfying elderly superiors by supplying them things. Somewhere else Narada found that Lord Krishna was engaged in discussing topics of fighting and somewhere else in making peace with enemies. Somewhere Lord Krishna was found discussing the ultimate auspicious activity for the entire human society with his elder brother, Lord Balaram. Narada saw Lord Krishna engage in getting his sons and daughters married with suitable brides and bridegrooms in due course of time, and the marriage ceremonies were being performed with great pomp. In one palace, the Lord was found bidding farewell to his daughters, and in another, he was found receiving a daughter-in-law. People throughout the whole city were astonished to see such pomp and ceremonies. Somewhere the Lord was seen performing different types of sacrifices to satisfy the demigods, who were only his qualitative expansions. Somewhere he was seen engaged in public welfare activities, establishing deep wells for the water supply, rest houses and gardens for unknown guests, and great monasteries and temples for saintly persons. These are some of the duties enjoined in the Vedas for householders for fulfillment of their material desires. Somewhere Krishna was found as a Kshatriya king engaged in hunting animals in the forest and riding on a very beautiful Sindhi horse. According to Vedic regulations, the Kshatriyas were allowed to kill prescribed animals on certain occasions either to maintain peace in the forest or to offer the animals in the sacrificial fire. Kshatriyas are allowed to practice this killing art because they have to kill their enemies mercilessly to maintain peace in society. In one situation, the great sage Narada saw Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead and Master of Mystic Powers, acting as a spy by changing his usual dress in order to understand the motives of different citizens in the city and the palaces. St. Narada saw all these activities of the Lord, who is the super-soul of all living entities, but who played the role of an ordinary human being to manifest the activities of his internal potency. Smiling within himself, Narada addressed the Lord as follows. My dear Lord of all mystic powers, object of the meditation of great mystics, the extent of your mystic power is certainly inconceivable even to mystics like Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva. But by your mercy, because of always engaged in the transcendental loving service of your lotus feet, your lordship has very kindly revealed to me the actions of your internal potency. My dear Lord, you are worshipable by all, and demigods and predominating deities of all 14 planetary systems are completely aware of your transcendental 
Now please give me your blessings so that I may be able to travel all over the universes singing the glories of your transcendental activities. The Supreme Personality of Godhead, Lord Krishna, replied to Narada as follows. My dear Narada, O sage among the demigods, you know that I am the supreme instructor and perfect follower of all religious principles, as well as the supreme enforcer of such principles. I am therefore personally executing such religious principles in order to teach the whole world how to act. My dear son, it is my desire that you not be bewildered by such demonstrations of my internal energy. The Supreme Personality of Godhead was engaged in his so-called household affairs in order to teach people how one can sanctify one's household life, although one may be attached to the imprisonment of material existence. Actually, one is obliged to continue the term of material existence because of household life. But the Lord, being very kind upon householders, demonstrated the path of sanctifying ordinary household life. Because Krishna is the center of all activities, the life of a Krishna conscious householder is transcendental to Vedic injunctions and is automatically sanctified. Thus Narada saw one single Krishna living in 16,000 palaces by his plenary expansions. Due to his inconceivable energy, he was visible in the palace of each and every individual queen. Lord Krishna had unlimited power, and Narada's astonishment was boundless upon observing again and again the demonstration of Lord Krishna's internal energy. Lord Krishna behaved by his personal example as if he were very much attached to the four principles of civilized life, <clears throat> namely religion, economic development, sense gratification, and salvation. <clears throat> These four principles of material existence are necessary for the spiritual advancement of human society. And although Lord Krishna had no need to do so, he exhibited his household activities so that people might follow in his footsteps for their own interest. Lord Krishna satisfied the sage Narada in every way. Narada was very much pleased by seeing the Lord's activities in Dwarka, and thus he departed. In narrating the activities of Lord Krishna in Dwarka, Shukadev Goswami explained to King Prikshit how Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, descends to this material universe by the agency of his internal potency and personally exhibits the principles which if followed can lead one to achieve the ultimate goal of life. All the queens in Dwarka, more than 16,000 in number, engaged their feminine attractive features in the transcendental service of a Lord by smiling, serving, and the Lord was pleased to behave with them exactly like a perfect husband, enjoying household life. One should know definitely that such pastimes cannot be performed by anyone but Lord Sri Krishna, who is the original cause 
of the creation maintenance and dissolution of the whole cosmic manifestation. Anyone who attentively hears the narrations of the Lord's pastimes in Dwarka or, or supports a preacher of the consciousness movement will certainly find it very easy to traverse the path of liberation and taste the nectar of the lotus feet of Lord Krishna. Do you want to hear that one again? Okay. <clears throat> Anyone who attentively hears the narrations of the Lord's pastimes in Dwarka or supports a preacher of the Krishna consciousness movement will certainly find it very easy to traverse the path of liberation, it's the nectar of the lotus feet of Lord Krishna. And thus he will be engaged in Lord Krishna's devotional service. Thus, in the purport of the 69th chapter of Krishna, page Narada visits the different homes of Lord Krishna. <clears throat> Chapter 70, Lord Krishna's Daily Activities. From the Vedic mantras, we learn that the Supreme Personality of Godhead has nothing to do. Natasya karyam karanam chabidyate. But if the Supreme Lord has nothing to do, how can we speak of the activities of the Supreme Lord? From the previous chapter, it is clear that no one can act the way the Lord Krishna does. We should clearly note this fact. The activities of the Lord should be followed, but they cannot be imitated. For example, Krishna's ideal as a householder for example, Krishna's ideal life as a householder can be followed, but if one wants to imitate Krishna by expanding into many forms, that is not possible. We should always remember, therefore, that Lord Krishna, although playing the part of a human being, simultaneously maintains the position of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. We can follow Lord Krishna's dealings with his wives as an ordinary human being, but his dealings with more than 16,000 wives at one time cannot be imitated. The conclusion is that to become ideal householders, we should follow in the footsteps of Lord Krishna as he displayed his daily activities, but we cannot imitate him at any stage of our life. Lord Krishna used to lie down with his 16,000 wives, but he would rise from bed very early in the morning, three hours before sunrise. By nature's arrangement, the crowing of the cocks warned, warns of the Brahma Muhurta hour. There is no need of alarm clocks. As soon as the cocks crow early in the morning, it is to be understood that it is time to rise from bed. Hearing that sound, Krishna would get up from bed, but his rising early was not very much to the liking of his wives. The wives of Krishna were so much attached to him that they would lie in bed embracing him, and as soon as the cocks crowed, Krishna's wives would be very sorry and would immediately condemn the crowing. In the garden within the compound of each palace, there were parijata flowers. Parijata is not an artificial flower. We remember that Krishna brought the parijata trees from heaven and planted them 
in all his palaces. Early in the morning, a mild breeze would carry the aroma of the Parijata flower and Krishna would smell it just after rising from bed. Due to this aroma, the honeybees would begin their humming vibration and the birds also would begin their sweet chirping sounds. Altogether, it would sound like the singing of professional chanters engaged in offering prayers to Krishna. Although Srimati Rukmini Devi, the first queen of Lord Krishna, knew that Brahma Muhurta is the most auspicious time in the entire day, she would feel disgusted at the appearance of Brahma Muhurta because she was not very happy to have Krishna leave her side in bed. Despite Srimati Rukmini Devi's disgust, Lord Krishna would immediately get up from bed exactly on the appearance of Brahma Muhurta. An ideal householder should learn from the behavior of Lord Krishna how to rise early in the morning. However, however comfortably, he may be lying in bed embraced by his wife. After rising from bed, Lord Krishna would wash his mouth, hands and feet and would immediately sit down and meditate on himself. This does not mean, however, that we should also sit down and meditate on ourselves. We have to meditate upon Krishna, Radha, Krishna. This is real meditation. Krishna is Krishna himself. Therefore, he was teaching us that Brahma Muhurta should be utilized for meditation on Radha, Krishna. By such meditation, Krishna would feel very much satisfied and similarly, we will also feel transcendentally pleased and satisfied if we utilize the Brahma Muhurta period to meditate on Radha and Krishna. And if we think of how Sri Rukmini Devi and Krishna acted as ideal householders to teach the whole human society to rise early in the morning and immediately engage in Krishna consciousness. There is no difference between meditating on the eternal forms of Radha, Krishna, and chanting the Mahamantra, Hare Krishna. As for Krishna's meditation, he had no alternative but to meditate on himself. The object of meditation is Brahman, Paramatma, or the Supreme Personality of Godhead. But Krishna himself is all three. He is the Supreme Personality of Godhead Bhagavan. The localized Paramatma is his plenary partial expansion and the all-pervading Brahman effulgence is the personal rays of his transcendental body. Therefore, Krishna is always one and for him there is no differentiation. That is the difference between an ordinary living being and Krishna. For an ordinary living being, there are many distinctions. An ordinary living being is different from his body and he is different from other species of living entities. A human being is different from other human beings and different from the animals. Even in his own body, there are different bodily limbs. We have our hands, our legs, but our hands and legs, but our hands are different from our legs. The hand cannot act like the leg, nor can the leg act like the hand. The ears can hear, but the eyes cannot. And the eyes can see, but the ears cannot. All these differences are technically called svajatiya vijayatiya. The bodily 
limitation whereby one part of the body cannot act as another part is totally absent from the Supreme Personality of Godhead. There is no difference between his body and himself. He is completely spiritual, and therefore there is no difference between his body and his soul. Similarly, he is not different from his millions of incarnations and plenary expansions. Baladev is the first expansion of Krishna, and from Baladev expands Sankarshana, Vasudev, Pradumna, and Aniruddha. From Sankarshana there is an expansion of Narayan, and from Narayan there is a second quadruple expansion of Sankarshan, Vasudev, Pradumna, and Aniruddha. Similarly, there are innumerable other expansions of Krishna, but all of them are one. Krishna has many incarnations such as Lord Nasingha, Lord Bor, Lord Fish, and Lord Tortoise. But there is no difference between Krishna's original two-handed form, like that of a human being, and these incarnations of gigantic animal forms. Nor is there any difference between the action of one part of his body and that of another. His hands can act as his legs, his eyes can act as his ears, or his nose can act as another part of his body. Krishna's smelling and eating and hearing are all the same. We limited living entities have to use a particular part of the body for a particular purpose, but there is no such distinction for Krishna. In the Brahma Sankhita, it is said, Angani Yasasakalindriya Vrittimanti. Krishna can perform the activities of one limb with any other limb. So by analytical study of Krishna and his person, it is concluded that he is the complete whole. When he meditates, therefore, he meditates on himself. Self-meditation by ordinary men, designated in Sanskrit as soham, is simply imitation. Krishna may meditate on himself because he is the complete whole, but we cannot imitate him and meditate on ourselves. Our body is a designation superimposed upon ourself, the soul. Krishna's body is not a designation. Krishna's body is also Krishna. There is no existence of anything foreign in Krishna. Whatever there is in Krishna is also Krishna. He is therefore the supreme, indestructible, complete existence or the supreme truth. Krishna's existence is not relative existence. Everything else but Krishna is a relative truth, but Krishna is the supreme, absolute truth. Krishna does not depend on his existence. Our existence, however, is relative. For example, only when there is light of the sun, the moon, or electricity are we able to see. Our seeing, therefore, is relative, and the light of the sun and moon and electricity is also relative. They are called illuminating only because we see them as such. But dependence and relativity do not exist in Krishna. His activities are not dependent on anyone else's appreciation, nor does he depend on anyone else's help. He is beyond the existence of limited time and space, and because he is transcendental to time and space, he cannot be covered by the illusion of maya, whose activities are limited. In the Vedic literature, we find that the Supreme Personality of God it has multipotencies. Since all such potencies are emanations from him, there's no him and his potencies. Certain philosophers say, however, that when Krishna comes, he accepts a material body. But even if it is accepted that when he comes to the material world, he accepts a material body, it should be concluded also that because the material energy is not different from him, this body does not act materially. 
In the Bhagavad Gita it is said, therefore, that he appears by his own internal potency, Atma Maya. Krishna is called the Supreme Brahman because he is the cause of creation, the cause of maintenance, and the cause of dissolution. Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, and Lord Shiva are expansions of these material qualities. All these material qualities can act upon the conditioned souls, but there is no such action and reaction upon Krishna because these qualities are all simultaneously one with and different from him. Krishna himself is simply Sakchirananda Vigraha, the eternal form of bliss and knowledge. And because of his inconceivable greatness, he is called the Supreme Brahman. His meditation on Brahman or Paramatma or Bhagavan is himself only and not on anything else beyond himself. This meditation cannot be imitated by the ordinary living entity. After his meditation, the Lord would regularly bathe early in the morning with clear, sanctified water. Then he would change into fresh clothing, cover himself with a wrapper, and engage in his daily religious functions. Out of his many religious duties, the first was to offer oblations into the sacrificial fire and silently chant the Gayatri Mantra. Lord Krishna, as the ideal householder, executed all the religious functions of a householder without deviation. When the sunrise became visible, the Lord would offer specific prayers to the sun god. The sun god and other demigods mentioned in the Vedic scriptures are described as different limbs of the body of Lord Krishna. And it is the duty of the householder to offer respects to the demigods and great sages, as well as the forefathers. As it is said in the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord has no specific duty to perform in this world, and yet he acts just like an ordinary man living an ideal life within this material world. In accordance with the Vedic ritualistic principles, the Lord would offer respects to the demigods. The regulative principle by which the demigods and forefathers are worshipped is called tarpana, which means pleasing. One's forefathers may have to take a body on another planet by by performance of this tarpana system, they become very happy wherever they may be. It is the duty of the householder to make his family members happy, and by following this tarpana system, he can make his forefathers happy also. As the perfect exemplary householder, Lord Krishna followed this tarpana system and offered respectful obeisances to the elderly, superior members of his family. His next duty was to give cows and charity to the brahmanas. Every day, Lord Krishna used to give many groups of 13,084 cows. Each of the cows was decorated with a silken cover and pearl necklace. Their horns were covered with gold, gold plating, and their hooves were silver plated. All of them were full of milk due to having their firstborn calves with them, and they were very tame and peaceful. When the cows were given in charity to the brahmanas, the brahmanas also were given nice silken garments, and each was given a deerskin and sufficient quantity of sesame seeds. The Lord is generally known as Go Brahmana Hitayacha, which means that his first duty is to see to the welfare of the cows and to the brahmanas. Thus he used to give cows and charity to the brahmanas with opulent decorations and paraphernalia. Then, wishing for the welfare of all living entities, he would touch auspicious articles such as milk, honey, ghee, clarified butter, gold, jewels, and fire. 
Although the Lord is by nature very beautiful due to the perfect figure of his transcendental body, he would dress himself in yellow garments and put on his necklace of Kaushtuba jewels. He would wear flower garlands, smear his body with the pulp of sandalwood, and decorate himself with similar cosmetics and ornaments. It is said that the ornaments themselves became beautiful upon being placed on the transcendental body of the Lord. After decorating himself in this way, the Lord would then look at marble statues of the cow and calf and visit temples of God or demigods like Lord Shiva. There were many brahmanas who would come daily to see the Supreme Lord before taking their breakfast. They were anxious to see him, and he welcomed them. His next duty was to please all kinds of men belonging to the different castes, both in the city and within the palace compound. He made them happy by fulfilling their different desires. And when the Lord saw them happy, he also became very much pleased. The flower garlands, beetle nuts, sandalwood pulp, and other fragrant cosmetic articles offered to the Lord would be distributed by him first to the brahmanas and elderly members of the family, then to the queens, and then to the ministers. And if there were still some balance, he would engage it for his own personal use. By the time the Lord finished all these daily duties and activities, his charioteer, Dharaka, would come with his wonderful chariot to stand before the Lord with folded hands, intimating that the chariot was ready and the Lord would come out of the palace to travel. Then the Lord, accompanied by Uddhava and Satyaki, would ride on the chariot, just as the sun god rides on his chariot in the morning, appearing with his blazing rays on the surface of the world. When the Lord was about to leave his palaces, all the queens would look at him with feminine gestures. The Lord would respond to their greetings <clears throat> with smiles, attracting their hearts so much that they would feel intense separation from him. The Lord would go to the assembly then then the Lord would go to the assembly house known as Sudharma. It may be remembered that the Sudharma assembly house was taken away from the heavenly planets and established in the city of Dwarka. The specific significance of the assembly house was that anyone who entered it would be freed from the six kinds of material pangs, namely hunger, thirst, lamentation, illusion, old age, and death. These are the waves of material existence. And as long as one, these are the waves of material existence. And as long as one, <clears throat> as long as one remained in that Sudharma assembly house, he would not be affected by these six waves. The Lord would say goodbye in all the six thousand palaces, and again he would become one and enter the Sudharma assembly house in procession with other members of the Yoda dynasty. After entering the assembly house, he used to sit on the exalted royal throne and would be seen to emanate glaring rays of transcendental effulgence. In the midst of all the great heroes of the Yadu dynasty, Krishna resembled the full, full moon in the sky, surrounded by 
multi-luminaries. In the assembly house were professional jokers, dancers, musicians, and ballet girls. And as soon as the Lord sat on his throne, they would begin their respective functions to please the Lord and put him in a happy mood. <clears throat> First of all, the jokers would talk in such a way that the Lord and his associates would enjoy their humor, which would refresh the morning mood. The, the dramatic actors would then play their parts, and the dancing ballet girls would separately display their artistic movements. All these functions would be accompanied by the beating of midunga drums and the sounds of the veena, flutes, and bells, followed by the sound of the muraja, another type of drum. To these musical vibrations, the auspicious sound of the conch shell would be added. The professional singers, called suttas and magadas, would sing, and others, and others would perform their dancing art. In this way, as devotees, they would offer respectful obeisances to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Sometimes the learned brahmanas present in the assembly would chant Vedic hymns and explain them to the audience to the best of their knowledge. And sometimes some cite old historical accounts of the activities of prominent kings. The Lord, accompanied by his associates, would be very much pleased to hear them. Once upon a time, a person arrived at the gateway of the assembly house who was unknown to all the members of the assembly. And with the permission of Lord Krishna, he was admitted into the assembly by the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper was ordered to present him before the Lord, and the man appeared and offered his respectful obeisances unto the Lord with folded hands. It had happened that when King Jarasandha conquered all other kingdoms, many kings did not bow their heads before Jarasandha, and consequently all of them, numbering 20,000, were arrested and made his prisoners. The man brought before Lord Krishna by the doorkeeper was a messenger from all these imprisoned kings. Being duly presented before the Lord, the man began to relay a message from the kings as follows. <clears throat> Dear Lord, you are the eternal form of transcendental bliss and knowledge. As such, you are beyond the reach of the mental speculation or vocal description of any materialistic man within this world. A slight portion of your glories can be known by persons fully surrendered unto your lotus feet. And by your grace only, such persons become freed from all material Dear Lord, we are not among these surrendered souls. We are still within the duality and illusion of this material existence. We therefore take shelter of your lotus feet, for we are afraid of the cycle of birth and death. Dear Lord, we think that there are many living entities like us who are eternally entangled in fruitive activities and their reactions. They are never inclined to follow your instructions by performing devotional service, although it is pleasing to the heart and most auspicious for one's existence. On the contrary, 
they are against the path of Krishna conscious life. And they are wandering within the three worlds, impelled by the illusory energy of material existence. Dear Lord, who can estimate your mercy and your powerful activities? You are present always as the insurmountable force of eternal time, baffling the indefatigable desires of the materialists, who are thus repeatedly confused and frustrated. We therefore offer our respectful obeisances unto you <clears throat> in your form of eternal time. Dear Lord, you are the proprietor of all the worlds, and you have inc incarnated yourself with your plenary expansion, Lord Balaram. It is said that your appearance in this incarnation is for the purpose of protecting the faithful and destroying the miscreants. Under the circumstances, how is it possible that miscreants like Jarasandha can put us into such deplorable conditions of life against your authority? We are puzzled at the situation and cannot understand how it is possible. It may be that Jarasandha has been deputed to give us such trouble because of our past misdeeds. But we have heard from revealed scriptures that anyone who surrenders unto your lotus feet is immediately immune to the reactions of sinful life. We therefore offer ourselves wholeheartedly unto your shelter, and we hope that your Lordship will now give us full protection. We have now come to the real conclusion of our lives. Our kingly positions were nothing but the reward of our past pious activities, just as our suffering imprisonment by Jarasandha is the result of our past impious activities. We realize now that the reactions of both pious and impious activities are temporary and that we can never be happy in this conditioned life. The material body is awarded to us by the modes of material nature and on account of this we are full of anxieties. The material condition of life simply involves bearing the burden of this dead body. As a result of fruitive activities, we have thus been subjected to being beasts of burden for these bodies. And being forced by conditioned life, we have given up the pleasing life of Krishna consciousness. Now we realize that we are the most foolish persons. We have been entangled in the network of material reactions due to our ignorance. We have therefore come to the shelter of your lotus feet, which can immediately eradicate all the results of fruit of action and thus free us from the contamination of material pains and pleasures. Dear Lord, because we are now surrendered souls at your lotus feet, you can give us relief from the entrapment of fruit of ac action by possibly Dear Lord, because we are now surrendered souls at your lotus feet, you can give us relief from the entrapment of fruit of action made possible by Jarasandha. Dear Lord, it is known to you that Jarasandha possesses the power of 10,000 elephants, and with this power he has imprisoned us, just as a lion hypnotizes a flock of sheep. Dear Lord, you have already fought with Jarasandha 18 times consecutively 
out of which you have defeated him 17 times by surpassing his extraordinarily powerful position. But in your 18th fight, you exhibited your human behavior, and thus it appeared that you were defeated. Dear Lord, we know very well that Jarasunda cannot defeat you at any time, for your power, strength, resources, and authority are all unlimited. No one can equal you or surpass you. Your apparent defeat by Jarasunda in the 18th engagement was nothing but an exhibition of human behavior. Unfortunately, foolish Jarasunda could not understand your tricks and has since then become puffed up over his material power and prestige. Specifically, he has arrested and imprisoned us, knowing fully that as your devotees we are subordinate to your sovereignty. The messenger concluded, Now I have explained the awful position of the kings, and your lordship can consider and do whatever you like. As the messenger and representative of all those imprisoned kings, I have submitted my words before your lordship and presented their prayers to you. All the kings are very anxious to see you so that they can all personally surrender at your lotus feet. My dear Lord, be merciful upon them and act for their good fortune. At the very moment the messenger of the imprisoned kings was presenting their appeal before the Lord, the great sage Narada arrived. Because he was a great saint, his hair was dazzling like gold, and when he entered the assembly house, it appeared that the sun god was personally present in the midst of the assembly. Lord Krishna is the worshipable master of even Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, yet as soon as he saw that the sage Narada had arrived, he immediately stood up with his ministers and secretaries to receive the great sage and offer his respectful obeisances by bowing his head. The great sage Narada took a comfortable seat, and Lord Krishna worshipped him with all paraphernalia, as required for the regular reception of a saintly person. While trying to satisfy Narada Lord Krishna spoke the following words in his sweet and natural voice. My dear great sage among the demigods, I think that now everything is well within the three worlds. You are perfectly eligible to travel everywhere in space in the upper, middle, and lower planetary systems of this universe. Fortunately, when we meet you, we can very easily take information from your holiness and of all the news of the three worlds, for within this cosmic manifestation of the Supreme Lord, there is nothing concealed from your knowledge. You know everything, and so I wish to question you. Are the Pandavas doing well? And what is the present plan of King Yudhishthira? Will you kindly let me know what they want to do at present? The great sage Narada spoke as follows. My dear Lord, you have spoken about the cosmic manifestation created by the Supreme Lord, but I know that you are the all-pervading creator. Your energies are so extensive and inconceivable that even powerful personalities like Brahma, the lord of this particular universe, cannot measure your inconceivable power. My dear Lord, you are present as the supersoul in everyone's heart by your inconceivable potency, exactly like the fire which is present in everyone, but which no one can see directly. In conditioned life, all living entities are within the jurisdiction of the three modes of material nature. As such, they are unable to see your presence everywhere with their material eyes. By your grace, however, 
I have seen many times the action of your inconceivable potency, and therefore, when you ask me for the news of the Pandavas, which is not at all unknown to you, I am not surprised at your inquiry. My dear Lord, by your inconceivable potencies, you create this cosmic manifestation, maintain it, and again dissolve it. Only by dint of your inconceivable potency does this material world, although a shadow representation of the spiritual world, appear to be factual. No one can understand what you plan to do in the future. Your transcendental position is always inconceivable to everyone. As far as I'm concerned, I can simply offer my respectful obeisances unto you again and again. In the bodily concept of existence, everyone is driven by material desires, and thus everyone develops new material bodies, one after another, in the cycle of birth and death. Being absorbed in such a concept of existence, one does not know how to get out of this encagement of the material body. By your causeless mercy, my Lord, you descend to exhibit your various transcendental pastimes, which are illuminating and full of glory. Therefore, I have no alternative but to offer my respectful obeisances unto you. My dear Lord, you are the supreme Parabrahman, and your pastimes as an ordinary human are another tactical resource, exactly like a play on the stage in which the actor plays parts different from his own identity. Because the Pandavas are your cousins, you have inquired about them in the role of their well-wisher, and therefore I shall let you know about their intentions. Now please hear me. First, I may inform you that King Yudhishthira has all material opulences which are possible to achieve in the highest planetary system, Brahmaloka. He has no material opulence for which to aspire, and yet he wants to perform the Rajasuya sacrifice only to get your association and please you. King Yudhishthira is so opulent that he has attained all the opulences of Brahmaloka even on this earthly planet. He is fully satisfied, and he does not need anything more. He is full in everything, but now he wants to worship you to achieve your causeless mercy, and I beg to request you to fulfill his desires. My dear Lord, in these great sacrificial performances by King Yudhishthira, there will be an assembly of all the demigods and all the famous kings of the world. My dear Lord, you are the Supreme Brahman, the Personality of Godhead one who engages himself in your devotional service by the prescribed methods of hearing, chanting, and remembering certainly becomes purified from the contamination of the modes of material nature and what to speak of those who have the opportunity to see you and touch you directly. My dear Lord, you are the symbol of everything auspicious. Your transcendental name and fame have spread all over the universe including the higher, middle, and lower planetary systems. The transcendental water which washes your lotus feet is known in the higher planetary system as Mandakini, in the lower planetary system as Bhagavati, and in this earthly planetary system as the Ganges. This sacred transcendental water flows throughout the entire universe, purifying wherever it flows. Just before the great sage Narada arrived in the Sudharma, assembly house of Dwaraka, Lord Krishna and his ministers and secretaries had been considering how to attack the kingdom of Jarasandha. Because they were seriously considering this subject, 
Narada's proposal that Lord Krishna go to Hastinapur for Maharaj Yudhishthira's great Rajasuya sacrifice did not much appeal to them. Lord Krishna could understand the intentions of his associates because he is the ruler of even Lord Brahma. Therefore, in order to pacify them, he smilingly said to Uddhava, My dear Uddhava, you are always my well-wishing confidential friend. I therefore wish to see everything through you because I believe that your counsel is always right. I believe that you understand the whole situation perfectly. Therefore, I'm asking your opinion. What should I do? I have faith in you, and therefore I shall do whatever you advise. It was known to Uddhava that although Lord Krishna was acting like an ordinary man, he knew everything, past, present, and future. However, because the Lord wanted to consult him, Uddhava, in order to render service to the Lord, began to speak. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 17th chapter of Krishna, Lord Krishna's daily activities. All right. Chapter 71. Lord Krishna. In the Narada, so Krishna. great sage Narada Muni has requested you to go to Hastinapur to satisfy King Yudhishthir, your cousin, who is making arrangements to perform the great sacrifice known as Raja Suya. I think, therefore, that your lordship should, go immediate, should immediately go there to help the king in this great venture. However, although to accept the invitation offered by the great sage Narada, as primary is quite appropriate. At the same time, my Lord, it is your duty to give protection to the surrendered souls. Both purposes can be served <clears throat> if we understand the whole situation. Unless we are victorious over all the kings, no one can perform this Rajasuya sacrifice. In other words, it is to be understood that King Yudhishthir cannot perform this great sacrifice without gaining victory over the belligerent king, Jarasandha. The Rajasuya sacrifice can be performed only by one who has gained victory over all directions. Therefore, to execute both purposes, we first have to kill Jarasandha. I think that if we can somehow or other gain victory over Jarasandha, all our purposes will be automatically, will all our purposes will automatically be served. The imprisoned kings will be released, and with great pleasure we shall enjoy the spread of your transcendental fame by having saved the innocent kings whom Jarasandha has imprisoned. But King Jarasandha is not an ordinary man. He has proved a stumbling block even to great warriors because his bodily strength is equal to the strength of 10,000 elephants. If there is anyone who can conquer this king, he is none other than Bhimasen because he also possesses the strength of 10,000 elephants. The best thing would be for Bhimasem to fight alone with him. 
then there would be no unnecessary killing of many soldiers. In fact, Jarasandha will be very difficult to conquer when he stands with his Akshohini divisions of soldiers. We may therefore adopt a policy more favorable to the situation. We know that King Jarasandha is very much devoted to the Brahmanas and very charitably, charitably disposed toward them. He never refuses any request from a Brahmana. I think, therefore, that Bhimasena should approach Jarasandha in the dress of a Brahmana, beg charity from him, and then personally engage in fighting him. And in order to assure Bhimasena's victory, I think that your lordship should accompany him. If the fighting takes place in your presence, I am sure Bhimasena will emerge victorious, for your presence makes ev everything impossible, possible. Indeed, <clears throat> Lord Brahma creates this universe and Lord Shiva destroys it simply through your influence. Actually, you create and destroy the entire cosmic manifestation. Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva are only the superficially visible causes. Creation and destruction are actually performed by the invisible time factor, which is your impersonal representation. Everything is under the control of this time factor. If your invisible time factor can perform such wonderful acts through Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, will not your personal presence help Bhimasen conquer Jarasandha? My dear Lord, when Jarasandha is killed, the queens of all the imprisoned kings will be so joyful at their husbands being released by your mercy that they will all sing your glories, being as pleased as the gopis were when released from the hands of Shankachuda. All the great sages, the king of the elephants, Gajendra, the goddess of fortune, Sita, and even your father and mother were all delivered by your causeless mercy. We also have been thus delivered, and we always sing the transcendental glories of your activities. Therefore, I think that if the killing of Jarasandha is undertaken first, that will automatically solve many other problems. As for the Rajasuya sacrifice arranged in Hastinapur, it will be held either because of the pious activities of the imprisoned kings or the impious activities of Jarasan. My Lord, it appears that you are to go personally to Hastinapur to conquer demoniac kings like Jarasandha and Shishupal and to release the pious imprisoned kings and also to perform the great Rajasuya sacrifice. Considering all these points, I think that your Lordship should immediately proceed to Hastinapur. This advice of Uddhava's <clears throat> was appreciated by all who were present in the assembly. Everyone considered that Lord Krishna's going to Hastinapur would be beneficial from all points of view. <clears throat> the great sage Narada, the elder personalities of the Yadu dynasty, and the supreme personality of Godhead, Krishna himself, all supported the statement of Uddhava. Lord Krishna then took permission from his father, Vasudev, and grandfather, Ugrasena, 
and he immediately ordered his servants, Dharaka and Jaitra, to arrange to travel to Hastinapur. When everything was prepared, Lord Krishna especially bade farewell to Lord Balaram and the king of the others, Ugrasena. And after dispatching his queens along with their children and sending their necessary luggage ahead, he mounted his chariot, which bore the flag marked with the symbol of Garuda. Before starting the procession, Lord Krishna satisfied the great sage Narada by offering him different kinds of articles of worship. Nardaji wanted to fall at the lotus feet of Krishna, but because the Lord was playing the part of a human being, he simply offered his respects within his mind and fixing the transcendental form of the Lord within his heart, he left the assembly house by the airways. Usually the sage Narda does not walk on the surface of the globe, but travels in outer space. After the departure of Narda, Lord Krishna addressed the messenger who had come from the imprisoned kings and told him that they should not be worried, for he would very soon arrange to kill the king of Magadha, Jarasandha. Thus he wished good fortune to all the imprisoned kings and the messenger. After receiving this assurance from Lord Krishna, the messenger returned to the imprisoned kings and informed them of the happy news of the Lord's forthcoming visit. <clears throat> All the kings were joyful at the news and began to wait very anxiously for the Lord's arrival. The chariot of Lord Krishna started for Hastinapur, accompanied by many other chariots, along with elephants, cavalry, infantry, and similar royal, royal paraphernalia. <clears throat> Bugles, drums, trumpets, conch shells, and horns all produced a loud, auspicious sound which vibrated in all directions. The 16,000 queens, headed by the goddess of fortune, Rik Rukmini Devi, the ideal wife of Lord Krishna, and accompanied by the respective sons, all followed behind Lord Krishna. They were dressed in costly garments, decorated with ornaments, and their bodies were smeared with sandalwood pulp and garlanded with fragrant flowers. Riding on the palanquins, nicely decorated with silk flags and golden lace, they followed their exalted husband, Lord Krishna. The infantry soldiers carried shields, swords, and lances in their hands and acted as royal bodyguards to the queen, queens. In the rear of the procession were the wives and children of all the other followers, and there were many society girls who fo were also following. Many beasts of burdens, like bulls, buffalo, mules, and asses, carried the camps, bedding, and carpets, and the women who followed were seated in separate palanquins on the banks of, backs of camels. This panoramic procession was accompanied by the shouts of the people and was full with the display of different colored flags, umbrellas, and whisks, and different varieties of weapons, dress, ornaments, helmets, and armaments. Shining in the sunlight, the procession appeared like an ocean with high waves and sharks.
In this way, the procession of Lord Krishna's party advanced toward Hastinapur, New Delhi, and gradually passed through the kingdoms of Anarta, Gujarat province, Salvira, Surat, the great desert Rajasthan, and then Kurukshetra. Between those kingdoms were many mountains, rivers, towns, villages, pasturing grounds, and mining fields. The procession passed through all these places in its advance. On its way to Hastinapur, the Lord crossed two big rivers, the Drishtavati and the Saraswati. Then he crossed the provinces of Panchala and Mutsya. In this way, he ultimately arrived at Hastinapur, or Indraprastha. The audience of the Supreme Personality of God in Krishna is not at all commonplace. Therefore, when King Yudhishthira heard that Lord Krishna had arrived in his capital city, Hastinapur, he became so joyful that all his bodily hairs stood on end in great ecstasy, and he immediately came out of the city to properly receive the Lord. He ordered the musical vibration of different instruments and songs, and the learned brahmanas of the city began to chant the hymns of the Vedas very loudly. Lord Krishna is known as Rishikesh, the master of the senses, and King Yudhishthira went forward to receive him exactly as the senses meet the consciousness of life. King Yudhishthira was the elder cousin of Krishna. Naturally, he had great affection for the Lord, and as soon as he saw him, his heart became filled with great love and affection. He had not seen the Lord for many days, and therefore he thought himself most fortunate to see the Lord present before him. The king therefore embraced Lord Krishna again and again in great affection. The eternal form of Lord Krishna is the everlasting residence of the goddess of fortune. As soon as King Yudhishthira embraced him, he became free from all the contamination of material existence. He immediately felt transcendental bliss and merged of happiness. There were tears in his eyes and his body shook in ecstasy. He completely forgot that he was living in this material world. After this, Bhimasena, the second brother of the Pandavas, smiled and embraced Lord Krishna, thinking of him as his own maternal cousin. And thus he also merged in great ecstasy. Bhimasena was so filled with ecstasy that for the time being he forgot his material existence. Then Lord Sri Krishna himself embraced the other three Pandavas, Arjuna, Nakula, and Sahadeva. The eyes of all three brothers were inundated with tears, and Arjuna embraced Krishna again and again because they were intimate friends. The two younger Pandava brothers, after being embraced by Lord Krishna, fell down at his lotus feet to offer their respects. Lord Krishna thereafter offered his obeisances to the Brahmanas present, as well as to the elder members of the Kuru dynasty, like Bhishma, Drona, and Dhritarashtra. There are many kings of different provinces, such as Kuru, Srinjaya, and Kekai, and Lord Krishna duly reciprocated greetings and respects with them. The professional reciters, like the Suttas, Magadas, and Vandis, accompanied by the Brahmanas, offer their respectful prayers to the Lord. Performing artists like the Gandharvas, as well as the royal jokers, began to play their Pandava drums, conch shells, kettle drums, veenas, mridangas, and bugles, and they exhibited their dancing art to please the Lord. Thus, the all-famous Supreme Personality of Godhead, Lord Krishna, entered the great city of Astinapur, which was opulent in every respect. 
While Lord Krishna was entering the city, all the people talked amongst themselves about the glories of the Lord, praising his transcendental name, qualities, form, and so on. The roads, streets, and lanes of Astinapur were all sprinkled with fragrant water through the trunks of intoxicated elephants. In different places of the city, there were colorful festoons and flags decorating the houses and streets. At important crossroads, there were gates with golden decorations, and at the two sides of the gates, there were golden water jugs. These beautiful decorations glorified the opulence of the city. Participating in this great ceremony, all the citizens gathered here and there, dressed in colorful new clothing and decorated with ornaments, flower garlands, and fragrant scents. <clears throat> the houses were all illuminated by hundreds and thousands of lamps placed in different corners of the cornices, walls, columns, bases, and <clears throat> architraves. And far away from the rays of the lamps appeared to be celebrating the festival of Diwali, a particular festival observed on the New Year's Day of the Hindu calendar. Within the walls of the houses, fragrant incense was burning, and smoke rose through the windows, making the entire atmosphere very pleasing. On the top of every house, flags were flapping, and the golden water pots kept on the roofs shone brightly. Lord Krishna thus entered the city of Pandavas, enjoyed the beautiful atmosphere, and slowly proceeded ahead. When the young girls in every house heard that Lord Krishna, the only object worth seeing, was passing on the road, they were very eager to see this all-famous personality. Their hair loosened and their tightened saris became slack due to their hastily rushing to see him. They gave up their household engagements, and those who were lying in bed with their husbands immediately left them and came directly down onto the street to see Lord Krishna. The procession of elephants, horses, chariots, and infantry was very crowded. Some of the girls, being unable to see properly in the crowd, got up on the roofs of the houses. Pleased to see Lord Krishna, Lord Sri Krishna passing with his thousands of queens, they showered flowers on the procession, embraced Lord Krishna within their minds, and gave him a hearty reception. When they saw him in the midst of his many queens, like the full moon situated amidst many luminaries, they began to talk amongst themselves. One girl said to another, my dear friend, it is very difficult to guess what kind of pious activities these queens have performed, for they are always enjoying the smiling face and loving glances of Krishna. While Lord Krishna was thus passing on the road, at intervals some of the citizens, who were all rich, respectable, and freed from sinful activities, presented auspicious articles to the Lord just to offer him a reception to the city. Thus they worshipped him as humble servitors. When Lord Krishna entered the palace, all the ladies there were overwhelmed with affection just upon seeing him. They immediately received Lord Krishna with glittering eyes, expressing their love and affection for him, and Lord Krishna smiled and accepted their feelings and gestures of reception. When Kunti, the mother of the Pandavas, saw her nephew, Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, she was overpowered by love and affection. She at once got up from her bedstead and appeared before him with her daughter-in-law, Draupadi, and in maternal love and affection she embraced him. As Maharaj Yudhishthira brought Krishna within the palace, the king became so confused in his jubilation that he practically forgot what he was to do at that time, that what he was to do at that time to receive Krishna and worship him properly. 
Lord Krishna delightfully offered his respects and obeisances to Kunti and other elder ladies of the palace. His younger sister, Subhadra, was also standing there with Draupadi, and both offered their respectful obeisances unto the lotus feet of the Lord. At the indication of her mother-in-law, Draupadi brought clothing, ornaments, and garlands. And when this paraphernalia, with this paraphernalia, they received the queens, Rukmini, Satyabhama, Bhadra, Jambavati, Kalindi, Mitravinda, Lakshmana, and the devoted Satya. These principal queens of Lord Krishna were first received, and then the other queens were also offered a proper reception. King Yudhishthira arranged for Krishna's rest and saw to it that all who came along with him, namely his queens, soldiers, ministers, and secretaries, were comfortably situated. He had arranged that they would experience a new feature of reception every day while staying as guests of the Pandavas. It was during this time that Lord Sri Krishna, with the help of Arjuna, allowed the fire god Agni to devour the Khandava forest for his satisfaction. During the forest fire, Krishna saved the demon Mayasura, who was hiding in the forest. Upon being saved, Mayasura felt obliged to the Pandavas and Lord Krishna, and he constructed a wonderfully, wonderful assembly house within the city of Astinapur. To please King Yudhishthira, Lord Krishna remained in the city of Hastinapur for several months. During his stay, he enjoyed strolling here and there. He used to drive on chariots with Arjuna, and many warriors and soldiers used to follow them. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 71st chapter of Krishna, Lord Krishna in Indraprastha city. Um, as far as I think, this was the only time when Krishna traveled with all his 16,000 endless procession and their sons. Must have been like millions, yeah. <laughs> and a second point was uh, when um, Krishna was talking to Rukmini, he said that um, he said that and the, the Yadus are not to take the throne because uh, they were cursed in the past. And I don't know whether you know the history, what was the curse and how it came about that the Yadus are not to take the throne. Definitely there's a story about this. It's in the Bhagavatam. Uh, I'm a little hesitant to tell it because I... How, how did the... Uh, why why was it that the Yadas were cursed not to be able to sit on the throne? There's definitely a story in the Bhagavatam about this. It's in the ninth canto. said here that there were 2,000 kings imprisoned because I remember Bhagavatam said 100 and now in Krishna book here it said 2,000 yeah. or 20,000 yeah. but more than 100 20, yeah so what was the number?
I have a question about a uh, previous chapter when uh, uh, I think it was described that Krishna was performing some sort of yagya that was recommended for householders to do. And Prabhupada was writing that it's recommended for householders to perform yagya. Uh, is it in ISKCON today? Is it like recommended to do that? Do we get purified from those sinful reactions by just chanting? Or, but, but how, why was it mentioned in that connection? Why didn't wasn't it explained? You know. In this context, he was specifically. That is, this this particular section was showing the detailed activities of a person who is adhering to a Vedic way of life. And it was, just, it was representative of, of the way that a person would stay close to the particular um, you know, rituals that were recommended. But they're not, they're not recommended. In fact, Prabhupada specifically says in other places that the pancha yagya is not necessary and the, uh, at this time because of the way as if you're chanting Hare Krishna and you're a devotee then you're already doing that covering that specific kind of yagya it's assumed by that it's like, it's like Krishna it's like form of Krishna all the incarnations are within the form of Krishna and Krishna is the source of everything, including the demigods. So when you worship Krishna properly, then you are you get the the result of all those uh, worships or all those sacrifices. So like that, the the Maha Mantra, you know, contains all the mantras and all the rituals and everything. So by chanting the Maha Mantra and by hearing the Srimad Bhagavatam, those five uh, in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindo. Those five uh, devotional activities, which make up the most important uh, and potent activities in devotional service, Prabhupada organized our life in such a way that if you follow his, you know, the, his 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 uh, instructions, then automatically you get everything. Automatically. We don't have to worry about doing the details of this one, this and this. Prabhu has a question or, or a comment. That's all right. <clears throat> a reflection when Yushtir Maharaj received Krishna and his queens and he makes sure that every day everybody experiences new flavor of reception. Like he was adding new and new specific feature to, so they can feel always ever fresh reception, not like recepted, I received, finished. But he was adding some new element so they can feel ever fresh and new feeling. It's, I was feeling there is love exhibited in the details. There is no details in love. So there's small, small things, you know, to make sure that they're feeling always newly, newly. And another thing, when 
they were entering Hastinapur, this is all girls, they're saying, what kind of pious activities the queens performed? It reminded me about the Mathura Ramani, when Krishna was entering Vrindavan, I mean, from Vrindavan to Mathura, all these Mathura Ramanis, all these uh, ladies, they same thing, what kind of pious activities the gopis did that they got, so they respectively kind of transcendental envy of Hastinapur, of Dvaraka, Dvaraka, of Mathura, Mathura, of Vrindavan, so everybody offering the same prayer. What kind of pious activities they have done so they can enjoy the smiles. Similarly, it and the gopis me. were saying, well, Krishna's off in the city now. He must be with the city women. <laughs> and then they were saying, they can't be tricked like like us. We're unsophisticated, but they're very sophisticated, so I don't think his tricks are going to work with them. But also they prayed. What, what pious activities Kubja did? That he just like that make her such a beautiful, and we putting tones and tones of chandan on his head every day he left us. And this girl just put him ting ting only once and he just stays with her. What is this? Uh, it seems like <coughs> transcendental envy. They always appreciating, in a, indirectly this appreciating the activity. Thank you. Here's a section from, uh, that's representative of what Prabhupada says about the Pancha Yagya. And this is from the ninth canto. He writes, um, he's, he, this, just to give a little context, for example, one may trample many small ants and other insects while walking on the street and kill many living beings unknowingly. Therefore, the Vedic principle of Pancha Yagya, five kinds of recommended sacrifices, compulsory. In this age of Kali, however, there is a great concession given to the people in general. Yagnai Sankirtana Prayer, Yajantihi Samedasa. We may worship Lord Chaitanya, the hidden incarnation of Krishna. Krishna Varnam Tusha Krishnam, although he is Krishna himself, he always chants Hare Krishna and preaches Krishna consciousness. One is recommended to worship this incarnation by chanting the Sankirtan Yagya. And he goes on to explain more about how the Sankirtan Yagya is a replacement for that. And the key word here is that it's a principle. He says, therefore, the Vedic principle of Pancha Yagya. And the principle is that you should atone for the kind of mess that you make by walking around the earth. I mean, um, there's a, a way in which one living being is food for another. This is mentioned in the in the Bhagavatam. And just by living, we exploit other living entities. So naturally, we should be performing sacrifice to make up for that. That's the principle. The application in one age is the Pancha Yagya, and in this age it's the Sankirtan Yagya. Any other points? Okay, true and false then. I give you some true and false. Because Lord Krishna meditated on himself when he sat down in the morning. We should also meditate on ourselves. False. True? You're out. <laughs> um, true or false, Lord Krishna used to meditate on the form of a calf. True. In the morning time. Uh, true or false, queens like Rukmini didn't mind Krishna getting up early uh, whenever the cocks crowed and just jump out of bed. 
True or false, when Krishna was entering Hastinapur, uh, many of the ladies, even before they had finished their their, um, their duties, they ran out into the street before they had finished even uh, um, doing their household duties, they ran out to see Krishna. Okay, 100%. Go ahead, Marsh. Do we get do we get some kind of like certificate or diploma or something here? Or? Huh? You get a bhakti shastra degree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I every time we hear the prayers of these great personalities and even even the messenger you know who was delivering the the prayers of the of the kings who were going to hear, as as, as Prabhu mentioned we're going to hear those prayers later on I think when they're actually delivered. I keep this keeps coming into my mind, you know, that uh, we're we're meant to follow in the footsteps of these personalities, meaning we're meant to develop mentality habits, learn to live in the world in such a way that we can be like that. Now we can't imitate. And then then thing came into my mind, the Gita. How the Bhagavad Gita, how fundamental the teachings of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita are to our existence in this world. And how all of these personalities, prayers, if you really boil it down, it gets down to persons who are actually fully surrendered to Krishna. And that is the Gita, you know. So I just think we need a revival and back to the basics. Hare Krishna. There you have it. There it is. There it is. Okay. <clears throat> uh-huh. Uh-huh. All righty. Here if my computer will start up again. Okay. <clears throat> chapter, this is an unbelievable, 72. Chapter 72. We've, we've read 71 chapters so far. A, A, A. 67%. Huh? 67%. Here we go. The liberation of King Jarasandha. In the great assembly of respectable citizens, friends, relatives, brahmanas, sages, chatriyas, and vaishyas, in the presence of all, including his brothers, King Yudhishthir directly addressed Lord Krishna as follows. My dear Lord Krishna, the sacrifice known as the Rajasuya Yagya is to be performed by the emperor and it is considered the king of all sacrifices. But by performing this sacrifice, I wish to satisfy all the demigods who are your empowered representatives within this material world. And I wish that you will kindly help in this great venture so that it may be successfully executed. As far as the Pandavas are concerned, we have nothing to ask from the demigods. Wait, did I say that right? Yes, as far as the Pandavas are concerned, 
we have nothing to ask from the demigods. We are personally fully satisfied to be your devotees. As you say in the Bhagavad Gita, persons bewildered by material desires worship the demigods. But my purpose is different. I want to perform this Rajasuya sacrifice and invite the demigods to show that they have no power independent of you, that they are all your servants, and that you and you are the supreme personality of Godhead. <clears throat> Foolish persons with a poor fund of knowledge consider your lordship an ordinary human being. Sometimes they try to find fault in you, and sometimes they defame you. Therefore, I wish to perform this Rajasuya Yagya. I wish to invite all the demigods, beginning from Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, and other exalted chiefs of the heavenly planets, and in that great assembly of demigods from all parts of the universe, I want to substantiate that you are the Supreme Personality of Godhead and that everyone is your servant. <clears throat> My dear Lord, those who are constantly in Christian consciousness and who think of your lotus feet or your shoes are certainly freed from all contamination of material life. <clears throat> Such persons who engage in your service in full Krishna consciousness, who meditate upon you only and offer prayers unto you, are purified souls. Being constantly engaged in Krishna conscious service, they are freed from the cycle of repeated birth and death. Or, even if they do not want to be freed from this material existence, but desire to enjoy material opulences, <clears throat> their desires are also fulfilled by their Krishna conscious activities. In fact, those who are pure devotees of your lotus feet have no desire for material opulences. As far as we are concerned, we are fully surrendered unto your lotus feet, <clears throat> and by your grace, we are so fortunate as to see you personally. Therefore, naturally, we have no desire for material opulences. The verdict of the Vedic, Vedic wisdom is that you are the Supreme Personality of Godhead. I wish to establish this fact, and I also want to show the world the difference between accepting you as the Supreme Personality of Godhead and accepting you as an ordinary, powerful, historical person. I wish to show the world that one can attain the highest perfection of life simply by taking shelter at your lotus feet, exactly as one can satisfy the branches, twigs, leaves, and flowers of an entire tree simply by watering the root. If one takes to Krishna consciousness, his life becomes fulfilled, both materially and spiritually. This does not mean that you are partial to the Krishna conscious person and indifferent to the non-Krishna conscious person. You are equal to everyone. That is your declaration. You cannot be partial to one and not interested in others, for you sit in everyone's heart as the super-soul and give everyone the respective results of his fruitive activities. You give every entity the chance to enjoy this material world as he desires. 
as the super soul, you sit in the body with the living entity, giving him the results of his own actions, as well as opportunities to turn toward your devotional service by developing Krishna consciousness. You openly declare that one should surrender unto you, giving up all other engagements, and that you will take charge of him, giving him relief from the reactions of all sins. Still, the living entity remains attached to material activities and suffers or enjoys the reactions without your interference. You are like the desired tree in the heavenly planets, which awards benedictions according to one's desires. Everyone is free to achieve the highest perfection, but if one does not so desire, then your awarding of lesser benedictions is not due to partiality. On hearing this statement of King Yudhishthir, Lord Krishna replied as follows, My dear King Yudhishthir, O killer of enemies, O ideal justice personified, I completely support your decision to perform the Rajasuya sacrifice. After you perform this great sacrifice, your good name will remain well established forever in the history of human civilization. <clears throat> My dear King, I may inform you that all the great sages, your forefathers, the demigods, and your relatives and friends, including me, desire that you perform this sacrifice. And I think that it will, it, and I think that it will satisfy every living entity. But I request that you first conquer all the kings of the world and collect all the requisite paraphernalia for executing this great sacrifice. My dear King Yudhishthir, your four brothers are direct representatives of important demigods like Vayu and Indra. It is said that Bhima was born of the demigod Vayu and that Arjuna was born of the demigod Indra whereas King Yudhishthir himself was born of a demigod, Yamaraj. As such, your brothers are great heroes, and you are the most pious and self-controlled king, and are therefore known as Dharmaraj. All of you are so qualified in devotional service to me that I have automatically been conquered by you. Lord Krishna told King Yudhishthir that he had that he is conquered by Lord Krishna told King Yudhishthir that he is conquered by the love of one who has conquered his senses. One who has not conquered his senses cannot conquer the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is the secret of devotional service. One who has not conquered his senses cannot conquer the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is the secret of devotional service. To conquer the senses means to engage them constantly in the service of the Lord. The specific qualification of all the Pandava brothers was that they always engaged their senses in the Lord's service. One who thus engages his senses becomes purified, and with purified senses, the devotee can actually render transcendental loving service to the Lord and conquer him.
Lord Krishna continued, There is no one in the three worlds of the universe, including the powerful demigods, who can surpass my devotees in any of the six opulences, namely wealth, strength, reputation, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. Therefore, if you want to conquer the worldly kings, there is no possibility of their emerging victorious. When Lord Krishna thus encouraged King Yudhisthira, the king's face brightened like a blossoms, blossoming flower because of transcendental happiness, and thus he ordered his younger brothers to conquer all the worldly kings in all directions. Lord Krishna empowered the Pandas to execute his great mission of chastising the infidel miscreants of the world and giving protection to his faithful devotees. In his Vishnu form, the Lord carries four weapons in his four hands, a lotus flower and a conch shell in two hands, and in the other two hands, a club and a disc. The club and disc are meant for infidel miscreants and demons, and the lotus flower and conch shell are for the devotees. But because the Lord is the supreme absolute, the result of all his weapons is one and the same. With a club and the disc, he chastises the miscreants so that they may come to their senses and know that they are not all in all. For above them is the supreme Lord. And by bugling the conch shell and offering blessings with the lotus flower, he always assures the devotees that no one can vanquish them, even in the greatest calamity. King Yudhishthir, being thus assured by the indication of Lord Krishna, ordered his youngest brother, Sahadeva, accompanied by soldiers of the Srinjaya tribe, to conquer the southern countries. Similarly, he ordered Nakula, accompanied by the soldiers of Matsyadesh, to conquer the kings on, of the western side. He sent Arjuna, accompanied by the soldiers of Kekayadesh, to conquer the kings of the northern side. And he ordered Bhimasena, accompanied by the soldiers of Madradesh, Madras, to conquer the kings of the eastern side. It may be noted that by dispatching his younger brothers to conquer in different directions, King Yudhisthira did not actually intend that they declare war upon the kings. Actually, the brothers started for different directions to inform the respective kings about King Yudhisthira's intention to perform the Rajasuya sacrifice. The kings were thus informed that they were required to pay taxes for the execution of the sacrifice. This payment of taxes to Emperor Yudhisthira meant that the king accepted subjugation before him. In case of a king's refusal to act accordingly, there was certainly a fight. Thus, by their influence and strength, the brothers conquered all the kings in different directions, and they were able to bring in sufficient taxes and presentations, which they brought before King Yudhisthira. King Yudhisthira was very angry, however, when he heard that King Jarasandha of Magadha did not accept his sovereignty. Seeing King Yudhishthira's anxiety, Lord Krishna informed him of the plan explained by Uddhava for conquering King Jarasandha. Bhimasena, Arjuna, and Lord Krishna then started together for Giriraja, the capital city of Jarasandha, dressing themselves in the garb of Brahmanas. This was the plan devised by Uddhava before Lord Krishna started for Hastinapur, and now it was given practical application. King Jarasandha had a very dutiful, was a very dutiful householder, and he had great respect for the prominence. He was a great fighter, a Kshatri king, but he was never neglectful of the Vedic injunctions. According to the Vedic injunctions, the Brahmanas are considered to be the spiritual masters of all other castes. 
Lord Krishna, Arjuna, and Bhimasena were actually Kshatriyas, but they dressed themselves as Brahmanas. And at the same time, when King Jarasandha was to give charity to the Brahmanas and receive them as guests, they approached him. Lord Krishna, in the dress of a Brahmana, said to the king, We wish all glories to your majesty. We three guests at your royal palace have come from a great distance to ask you for charity, and we hope that you will kindly bestow upon us whatever we ask from you. We know about your good qualities. A person who is tolerant is always prepared to tolerate everything, even though distressful. Just as a criminal can perform the most abominable acts, a greatly charitable person like you can give anything and everything for which he is asked. For a great personality like you, there is no distinction between relatives and outsiders. A famous man lives forever, even after his death. Therefore, any person who is completely fit and able to execute acts which will perpetuate his good name and fame, and yet does not do so, becomes abominable in the eyes of great persons. <clears throat> Such a person cannot be condemned enough, and his refusal to give charity is lamentable throughout his whole life. Your Majesty must have heard the glorious names of charitable personalities such as Harish Chandra, Randev, and Mudgala, who used to live only on grains picked up from the paddy field, and the great Maharaj Shibi, who saved the life of a pigeon by supplying him flesh from his own body. These Great personalities have attained immortal fame simply by sacrificing the perishable body. Lord Krishna in the garb of a brahmana thus convinced Jarasandha that fame is imperishable, but the body is perishable. If one can attain imperishable name and fame by sacrificing his perishable body, he becomes a very respectable figure in the history of human civilization. While Lord Krishna was speaking in the garb of a brahmana, Along with Arjuna and Bhima, Jarasandha marked that the three of them did not appear to be actual brahmanas. There were signs on their bodies by which Jarasandha could understand that they were kshatriyas. Their shoulders were marked with impressions due to carrying bows, and they had beautiful bodily structure, and their voices were grave and commanding. Thus he definitely concluded that they were not brahmanas but kshatriyas. He also thought that he had seen them somewhere before. But although these three persons were kshatriyas, they had come to his door begging alms like brahmanas. Therefore he decided that he would fulfill their desire in spite of their being kshatriyas because they had already diminished their position by appearing before him as beggars. Under the circumstances, he thought, I am prepared to give them anything. Even if they ask for my body, I shall not hesitate to offer it to them. In this regard, he began to think of Bali Maharaj. Lord Vishnu, in the dress of a brahmana, appeared as a beggar before Bali and snatched away all of his opulence and his kingdom. He did this for the benefit of Indra, who, having been defeated by Bali Maharaj, was bereft of his kingdom. Although Bali Maharaj was cheated, his reputation as a great devotee, able to give anything and everything in charity, is still glorified throughout the three worlds. Bali Maharaj could guess that the brahmana was Lord Vishnu himself and had come to him just to take away his opulent kingdom on behalf of Indra. Bali's spiritual master and family priest, Shukracharya, repeatedly warned him about this, yet Bali did not hesitate to give in charity whatever the brahmana wanted, 
and at last he gave up everything to that brahmana. It is my strong determination, thought Jarasandha, <clears throat> that if I can achieve immortal reputation by sacrificing this perishable body, I must act for that purpose. The life of a kshatriya who does not live for the benefit of the brahmanas is certainly condemned. Actually, King Jarasandha was very liberal in giving charity to the brahmanas. And thus he informed Lord Krishna, Bhima, and Arjuna, My dear brahmanas, you may ask from me whatever you like. If you so desire, you may take my head also. I am prepared to give it. After this, Lord Krishna addressed Jarasandha as follows. My dear king, please note that we are not actually brahmanas, nor have we come to ask for food or grain. We are all shachas, and we have come to beg a duel with you. We hope that you will agree to this proposal. You may note that here is the second son of King Pandu, Bhimasena, and the third son of Pandu, Arjuna. As for myself, you may know that I am your old enemy, Krishna, the cousin of the Pandavas. When... <clears throat> When Lord Krishna disclosed their disguise, King Jarasandha laughed very loudly, and then in a great and then in great anger and in a grave voice he exclaimed, "You fools! If you want to fight with me, I immediately grant your request. But Krishna, I know that you are a coward. I refuse to fight with you because you become very confused when you face me in fighting." Out of fear of me, you left your own city, Mathura, and now you have taken shelter within the sea. Therefore, I must refuse to fight with you. As far as Arjun is concerned, I know that he is younger than me and is not an equal fighter. I refuse to fight with him because he is not in any way an equal competitor. But as far as Bhima Sain is concerned, I think he is a suitable competitor to fight with me. After speaking in this way, King Jarasandha immediately handed a very heavy club to Bhimasain. He himself took another, and all of them went outside the city walls to fight. Bhimasain and King Jarasandha engaged themselves in fighting, and with their respective clubs, which were as strong as thunderbolts, they began to strike each other very severely, both of them being eager to fight. They were both expert fighters with clubs, and their techniques of striking each other were so beautiful that they appeared to be two dramatic artists dancing on a stage. When the clubs of Jurasanta and Bhimasen lighted, the impact sounded like that of the big tusks of two fighting elephants, or like a thunderbolt in a flashing electrical storm. When two elephants fight together in a sugarcane field, each of them snatches a stick, a stick of sugarcane, holds it tightly in his trunk, and strikes the other. At that time, the sugarcane becomes smashed by such heavy striking. Similarly, when Bhimasen and Jarasandha were heavily striking each other with their clubs on different parts of their bodies, namely the shoulders, arms, collarbone, chest, thighs, waist, and legs, their clubs were torn to pieces. In this way, all the clubs used by Jarasana and Bhimasen became ruined, 
And so the two enemies prepared to fight with their strong-fisted hands. Jarasand and Bhimasen were very angry, and they began to smash each other with their fists. <clears throat> the striking of their fists sounded like the striking of iron bars or like the sound of thunderbolts. And the two warriors appeared to be like two elephants fighting. Neither was able to defeat the other, however, for both were expert in fighting. They were of equal strength, and their fighting techniques were also equal. Neither Jarasandha nor Bhimasena became fatigued or defeated in fighting, although they struck each other continuously. At the end of each day's fighting, they lived at night as friends at Jarasandha's palace. And the next day they fought again. In this way, they passed 27 days in fighting. On the 28th day, Bhimasena told Krishna, My dear Krishna, I must frankly admit that I cannot conquer Jarasandha. Lord Krishna, however, knew the mystery of Jarasandha's birth. Jarasandha had been born in two different parts from two different mothers. When his father saw that the baby was useless, he threw the two parts into the forest. There they were later found by a witch named Jara, who, who was skilled in the black arts. She managed to join the two parts of the baby from top to bottom. Knowing this, Lord Krishna therefore also knew how to kill him. He hinted to Bhimasen that since Jarasan had been brought to life by the joining of the two parts of his body, he could be killed by the separation of these two parts. Thus Lord Krishna transferred his power into the body of Bhimasena and informed him of the device by which Jarasandha could, could be killed. Lord Krishna broke off a twig from a tree, took it in his hand and bifurcated it. In this way he hinted to Bhimasena how Jarasandha could be killed. Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, is omnipotent. And if he wants to kill someone, no one can save that person. Similarly, if he wants to save someone, no one can kill him. Informed by the hints of Lord Krishna, Bhimasena immediately took hold of Jarasandha's legs and threw him to the ground. When Jarasandha fell, Bhimasena immediately pressed one of Jarasandha's legs to the ground and took hold of the other leg with his two hands. Catching Jarasandha in this way, he tore his body in two from the anus up to the head. As an elephant breaks the branches of a tree in two, Bhimasena separated the body of Jarasandha. The audience standing nearby saw that Jarasandha's body was now divided into two halves, so that each half had one leg, one thigh, was one testicle, half a backbone, half a chest, one collarbone, one arm, one eye, one ear, and half a face. <laughs> as soon as the news of Jarasandha's death was announced, all the citizens of Magadha began to cry, Alas! Alas, while Lord Krishna and Arjuna embraced Bhimasen to congratulate him, 
Although Jarasana was killed, neither Krishna nor the two Pandava brothers made a claim to the throne. Their purpose in killing Jarasandha was to stop him from creating a disturbance to the proper discharge of world peace. Hmm. Hmm. A demon always creates disturbances, whereas a demigod always tries to keep peace in the world. The mission of Lord Krishna is to protect the righteous and kill the demons who disturb a peaceful situation. Therefore, Lord Krishna immediately called for the son of Jarasandha, whose name was Sahadev. And with ritualistic ceremonies, the Lord asked him to occupy the seat of his father and reign over the kingdom peacefully. Lord Krishna is the master of the whole cosmic creation, and he wants everyone to live peacefully and execute Krishna consciousness. After installing Sahadev on the throne, he released all the kings and princes who had been imprisoned unnecessarily by Jarasandha. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport to the 72nd chapter of Krishna, the liberation of King Jarasandha. Not to the Not to the Not to the Not to the Not to the